Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about complicated and evil queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. Last week we talked about a socialite and critic in New York in the 1920s and 30s, Carl van Vechten. Who are we talking about today, Ben? Well, I'm going to start our conversation today uh, by reading something that was written by this person. Somewhere in this world, there exists an exceptional philosopher named Flory Rotondo. The other day, I came across one of her ruminations printed in a magazine devoted to the writings of schoolchildren. It said, if I could do anything, I would go to the middle of our planet Earth and seek uranium, rubies, and gold. I'd look for unspoiled monsters. Then I'd move to the country. Flory Rotondo, age eight. Flory, honey, I know just what you mean, even if you don't. How could you, age eight? Because I have been to the middle of our planet, at any rate, have suffered the tribulations such a journey might inflict. I have searched for uranium, rubies, gold, and en route have observed others in those pursuits. And listen, Flory, I have met unspoiled monsters. Spoiled ones, too. But the unspoiled variety is the rara avis, white truffles compared to black, bitter wild asparagus as opposed to garden-grown. The only thing I haven't done is move to the country. I just read the beginning of the first chapter of the last unfinished novel of today's subject, the writer Truman Capote. Born in a violent and difficult childhood in the American South, he would rise to the highest levels of literary celebrity, praise, and fame, even joining the highly exclusive jet set of 1960s and 1970s high society. Several of his short stories, novels, and plays have become literary classics, including Uh, his debut novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, the novella Breakfast at Tiffany's, and the true crime nonfiction novel In Cold Blood. But Capote would be pursued by demons throughout his life, including alcoholism, other forms of addiction, and a kind of crippling self-doubt, which would end up leading him to destroy himself and his own social reputation. I want to admit, uh, as we begin here, that I find it hard to uh, be neutral about Truman Capote. Um, I think everybody who writes is the most influenced by the people they were reading when they were about 16 years old. And Truman Capote was one of my first real writers. Um, and so he is still, I think my favorite prose stylist in the English language is his, his prose is still the prose that I think all prose should sound like in my head, if that makes sense. So Truman was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, to, uh, two parents with excellent Southern names. Lily May Falk, and Archelaus Persons. His parents divorced when he was four years old, and he was shipped off to a small town called Monroeville, Alabama. Um, And in 1930, which is when he was sent to Monroeville to live, uh, this is a small country town at the height of the Depression-era American South. Was a town of 1,355 people, uh, which was probably exaggerated by local officials because you needed to have enough people, you needed to have more than a certain number of people to get a post office. Quoting from Capote's excellent biography by Gerald Clark, which um, was one of my main sources for the research here, uh, quote, there was not one paved street and a row of oak trees grew right down the middle of Alabama Avenue. On hot summer days, cars and horses kicked up red dust every time they passed by. When it rained, that dust turned to mud. Without a map, it was hard to know where the town began and the surrounding farmland ended. Yards were big, with two or three outbuildings, and most people kept chickens, some pigs, and at least one cow. Everyone followed farmer's hours, up by dawn, in bed by eight or nine. 
So on this moment on the eve of the Great Depression, the South was the poorest region in the United States. This is even before the Depression. Its per capita income was 50% of the national figure. It was a rural one crop society, cotton, in which too many people were chasing too little income from farming. It was a place where even people who did work in uh, factories or, or, uh, or other kinds of uh, workplaces, um, those were all, as we would say, open shops, as in a place where uh, it was much easier to break unions. And it was also, of course, a place that was rigidly segregated and a place where African-Americans were politically and economically powerless. I was just saying it's a very evocative description. It kind of sounds like um, a, a Tennessee Williams play or something that's sort of like languid, slow and poor, um, living in it, living off past glory in the minds of the people who live there or the minds of the white people who live there. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you'll definitely get, I mean, I think Truman Capote's first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, um, uh, around the same time as a play like A Streetcar Named Desire is kind of the the novel version of that and in a way is even more honest about about um, the is even more honest about some of those themes but we'll get to that when we get to the book um, so as I was saying the, the South had politics that were dominated by an alliance of local white elites and planters and industrialists who were immune to popular pressure uh, because they dominated economically and because they restricted black people from voting and because poor white people were brought along with what some scholars have called the wages of whiteness, i.e. the idea that by being superior to someone, um, in this case black people, you uh, will be willing to accept privation. And uh, this was a time when planners and industrialists wanted to have a big surplus labor force, low wages, low taxes, and minimal government services. Sounds familiar. Um, then throw the depression on top of that. In 1929, the cotton crop across the American South earned $1.5 billion when it was sold. Uh, three years later in 1932, that was 465 million. So it's a collapse of, it's an enormous collapse of almost two thirds, um, meaning that a region that's already very poor is thrown into even more striking poverty. The young Truman uh, formed a bond with his mother's relative uh, with the name Nanny Rumbly Falk, uh, who Truman referred to as Souk. These are such great southern names, Nanny yeah. Rumbly. Nanny Rumbly Falk. And in Monroeville, Capote uh, lived next door to old tomboy uh, by the name of Harper Lee. Uh, yes, that one, who... Uh, would also go on to become a very well-known author and who would base uh, the town in her book To Kill a Mockingbird and then her second book, Go Set a Watchman, although that, didn't, that wasn't released until so much later, um, on the town of Monroeville, Alabama, where they both grew up. And um, there's a character based on Harper Lee in uh, Truman Capote's first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, which is about that time. And then, of course, the character of Dill in To Kill a Mockingbird, that little kind of effeminate boy, uh, is uh, certainly based on Capote, and the two remain friends throughout their life. Harper Lee will come back later in the story. Um, this is also, of course, a town, as I've mentioned, with a very rigid racial regime. In an essay uh, on what he calls the shadows in Truman Capote's early stories, the writer and critic Hilton Alls describes Truman Capote as, quote, a child growing up in Louisiana and rural Alabama, and then Connecticut and New York, a citizen formed by a divided world and opposing cultures. In his native south, there was segregation, and up north, at least talk of assimilation. In both places, there was his intractable queerness and the queerness of being a writer. 
Uh, he refers to Capote's reportorial voice as being among his work's more poignant features, along with his careful depictions of difference. Um, and one of the interesting things that, that Alst does in that essay, which we'll link to in the show notes, is track the ways in which um, Capote is able to, um, as Alst puts it, move from failing his talent to serving his talent when it comes to um, depicting writing and understanding race in his work. By the age of eight, Truman Capote was writing short stories. Um, and uh, when he moved to uh, the New York City area in the early 1940s, he began writing a big sort of flow of short fiction. He won the prestigious O. Henry Award in 1948 at the age of 24, and his stories began to be published in both little literary magazines and also popular magazines. So um, the Atlantic Monthly, Harper's, Mademoiselle, The New Yorker, etc. In the spring of 1946, Capote was accepted as a, a resident at Yaddo, which is the well-known artist and writer's colony in Saratoga Springs, New York. When you get accepted to Yaddo, you're able to uh, nominate other people to go after you. And he ended up nominating Patricia Highsmith, who wrote Strangers on a Train while she was there in her residency. And in that time, Capote was working on a novel set in New York City about the summer romance of a socialite and a parking lot attendant, um, which he claimed to have destroyed that manuscript, but uh, it turns out that in 1950, uh, a house sitter at his apartment had uh, taken the pages out of the trash and kept them. And so the novel was actually brought out in 2006 posthumously under the title Summer Crossing. And uh, having read it, I can say there's a reason he ripped it up. I was gonna say, that seems like a, a big imposition. Uh, I'm not really into that sort of thing. Neither am I, although as we'll see the... He has a right to determine what he releases under his own name, surely. He does, although as we'll see, um, especially with the last work, Answered Prayers, there's um, there's some very interesting theories about what might have happened to the, to the parts of it that we haven't seen. So uh, the critical success of his short stories uh, attracted the attention of a publisher, and he was given an advance of $1,500 from Random House to write a novel. Uh, and he wrote the manuscript back in Monroeville and then finished it in uh, North Carolina and eventually in the elite summer resort of Nantucket. So already you see um, in just the places in which he wrote the novel, the beginning of his kind of self-social transformation. Um, the novel is uh, a sort of semi-autobiographical tale of his childhood in Alabama. In 1973, Capote would remember, quote, other voices, other rooms was an attempt to exercise demons, an unconscious, altogether intuitive attempt, for I was not aware, except for a few incidents and descriptions, of its being in any serious degree autobiographical. Rereading it now, I find such self-deception unpardonable. I find it hard to believe he didn't realize this book was uh, not autobiographical. It begins um, with a young boy being sent off to live with... Uh, with from his uh, mother in New York being sent off to live with relatives in a town called Noon City, Alabama, which stands in for, for Monroeville. And I'll read the first paragraph of Other Voices, Other Rooms. I'm going to do a lot of reading from Capote's work over the course of the episode because I think it's interesting to hear how his voice um, evolves over time and, and also uh, the pristine beauty of his sentences. This is the first paragraph of Other Voices, Other Rooms. Now a traveler must make his way to Noon City by the best means he can, for there are no buses or trains heading in that direction. 
though six days a week a truck from the Chewberry Turpentine Company collects mail and supplies in the next-door town of Paradise Chapel. Occasionally, a person bound for Noon City can catch a ride with the driver of the truck, Sam Radcliffe. It's a rough trip no matter how fast you come, for these washboard roads will loosen up even brand new cars pretty fast, and hitchhikers always find the going bad. Also, this is lonesome country, and here in the swamp-like hollows where tiger lilies bloom the size of a man's head, there are luminous green logs that shine under the dark marsh water like brown corpses. Often the only movement on the landscape is winter smoke winding out the chimney of some sorry-looking farmhouse, or a wing-stiffened bird, silent and arrow-eyed, circling over the black, deserted pine woods. So as I mentioned, the story of the novel focuses on a, on a young boy, a 13-year-old, Joel Knox, uh, who, following the death of his mother, is sent from New Orleans to live with his father, who had abandoned him, and he arrives at uh, a decaying mansion in rural Alabama called Scully's Landing, uh, where he meets uh, his very dour stepmother, um, a sort of tomboy girl based on Harper Lee, who becomes his friend and his uh, kind of drunken gay uncle Randolph. Um, he hears all these mysterious noises from the attic and no one tells him where his father is, but he uh, ends up discovering that his father is a severely ill, uh, mentally ill paraplegic who's kept up in the attic and sort of fed by everybody, but never taken out. And, uh, Joel then is so terrified by this that he tries to run away uh, with Isabel, the sort of tomboy girl, uh, but then catches pneumonia and comes back to the landing and is nursed back to health by the gay uncle Randolph. Um, he keeps seeing the kind of ghost of a fat woman with rouged cheeks and hair throughout the book. And it gradually becomes clear that this ghost is Randolph dressing up in drag. Um, and at the end of the book, Joel is standing outside and then sees Randolph beckoning from the window and kind of goes back into him, um, in some sense, making, a, making peace with his own identity. So the, just to, to quote again, the last paragraph of the book, this is the, the hymn in this is Joel. His mind was absolutely clear. He was like a camera waiting for its subject to enter focus. The wall yellowed in the meticulous setting of the October sun and the windows were rippling mirrors of cold, seasonal color. Beyond one, someone was watching him. All of him was dumb except his eyes. They knew, and it was Randolph's window. Gradually, the blinding sunset drained from the glass, darkened, and it was as if snow were falling there, flakes shaping snow eyes, hair. A face trembled like a white, beautiful moth, smiled. She beckoned to him, shining in silver, and he knew he must go, unafraid, not hesitating, he paused only at the garden edge where, as though he'd forgotten something, he stopped and looked back at the bloomless descending blue at the boy he had left behind. Wow, wonderful. Yeah, so it's a complete, um, you know, Bildungsroman reversal, a sort of queer Bildungsroman reversal in which the, the character of the father is sort of horrifying and awful and he connects to the, like, weird transvestite uncle who's constantly talking about the Mexican boxer who left him for a woman in 1922. Um, the book uh, immediately made the bestseller list. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for nine weeks. It sold 26,000 copies. And um, this is also the beginning of Capote matching his literary talent with a talent for self-promotion. He had a 
there's a picture that was taken to put on the back of the book um, in which you see a reclining Capote gazing into the camera and where his hands are placed. It's a very provocative picture, let's just say. Um, Capote claimed that the camera had caught him off guard, but in fact, he very carefully posed himself and uh, the photo created a complete publicity uproar. The Los Angeles Times wrote that the author looked as if he were, quote, dreamily contemplating some outrage against conventional morality. Um, the photo made a huge impression on a young man named Andy Warhol, who was 20 years old at the time, and uh, wrote fan letters to Capote. Um, Warhol's fascination with Capote actually led to Warhol's first uh, single show in New York, which was called 15 Drawings Based on the Writings of Herman Capote. Uh, the photographer was walking down Fifth Avenue one day and saw two middle-aged women looking at the photograph blown up in the window of the bookstore. And one woman said, I'm telling you, he's just young. And the other responded, and I'm telling you, if he isn't young, he's dangerous. At this time, uh, Capote was in one of his first serious relationships with a literature professor named Newton Arvin, uh, who was the dedicatee of Other Voices, Other Rooms. Um, he had just, uh, he would, or rather, he was about to win the National Book Award for a biography of Herman Melville, which is apparently still a, a very well-regarded uh, book on Melville. Um, because Capote had never been formally educated, Arvin kind of saw himself as Capote's educator. Um, he was a... Uh, sort of active political literary professor and uh, a few years earlier had been uh, active in the case of Sacco and Vanzetti trying to get the two a fair trial. Um, he was a trustee of Yaddo, uh, which is how he met Capote uh, when Capote went there uh, to be writer in residence. Uh, Newton would address Capote in their love letters as precious spooky. Um, and Capote would later, as I mentioned, describe Newton Arvin as, quote, my Harvard. Um, cute. It is, uh, although Newton Arvin's story ends very sadly. Um, in 1960, the uh, United States Postmaster General's office uh, initiated a crackdown on the distribution and possession of obscene materials um, at a time when local officials in Northampton, Massachusetts, where Smith College is now, were engaged in an anti-gay crusade. Uh, if you know Northampton, Massachusetts's reputation now as uh, the most lesbian place on earth, it's hard to believe. Uh, but at this time, this is still sort of Puritan, small town, uh, Protestant Massachusetts. To quote uh, little Edie Beale about East Hampton in Grey Gardens, they'll get you there for wearing red shoes on a Thursday. It's a mean, nasty Republican town. Um, but uh, so local officials um, discovered that Arvin was receiving physique pictorial uh, in the mail and arrested him on pornography charges and uh, publicly ruined his reputation. Uh, there were news articles about Arvin, quote, being a lewd person. Um, and uh, Arvin ended up pleading guilty. He paid a $1,200 fine and was suspended from teaching, although Smith did keep him on half salary. Until retirement age, um, Yaddo kicked him off the board and he never visited again. And uh, Arvin ended up uh, spending a fair bit of time in a state mental hospital after that. So he was just sort of driven to... Uh, driven they to just destroy, destroyed him. They just destroyed him, which I think gives you um, some interesting background to think about Capote building a kind of public persona. Queer reputation. Yeah. As a queer, yeah. And, and, and Capote... Unlike Arvin, who is a who is a somewhat uh, 
unlike Arvin, who could who could put on the drag of you know respectable Protestant professor Newton Arvin, Capote was always, um, to put it bluntly and lovingly, a lisping queen, and uh, so was able to constantly kind of live on this knife's edge of danger, uh, which is fascinating, I think, to think about um, how that affects the anxieties and the um, strange drives that he seems to have felt throughout his life. So in the early 1950s, Capote began uh, taking on uh, different kinds of work. Uh, he adapted a novella into a play. Uh, he wrote the book of a musical called House of Flowers, starring Pearl Bailey. I mean, Truman Capote, Harold Arlen, and Pearl Bailey. How do you go wrong? Apparently, you can, because um, it was a big flop. Uh, his next uh, book-length work is a piece of nonfiction called The Muses Are Heard, which is about a touring production of uh, George and Ira Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess uh, traveling through the Soviet Union. And uh, Al's refers to this as a strange and hilarious book which covers a troupe of black actors in communist era Moscow and the Russians' sometimes racist reaction to the performers. And uh, Al's indicates that this is the book where Capote is uh, first able to um, describe uh, to use the sort of precision of his reporter's eye uh, to describe and understand racism and to analyze racism. Capote uh, at this time also meets a guy named Jack Dumphy, uh, with whom he is at least very loosely partnered until his death. Um, Capote and Dumphy's relationship lasted the majority of Capote's life, but they lived very different lives. They had often separate houses um, and uh, like for much of the 1970s, they didn't speak to each other. They were constant presences in each other's lives, but it was very on and off. Dumphy had been born in uh, New Jersey and raised in a working-class neighborhood of Philadelphia. He trained in ballet and toured South America with the George Balanchine Ballet Company and at first married a woman named Joan McCracken, who was another Broadway dancer, and they both were dancers in the original Broadway production of Oklahoma um, and were also in... Uh, Broadway production of The Pirates of Penzance. So far, so gay. And then... Uh, That's an ideal husband material. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then uh, Dumphy enlisted in the army uh, during World War II. And uh, during his service, like so many other people who enlisted in the army, uh, discovered that he liked being around other men kind of a lot. Um, at the time he met Capote in 1948, Dumphy had uh, just begun his divorce uh, process from McCracken and had just written a novel called John Fury. Dumphy was also a writer, although his works have been mostly forgotten. I actually wasn't able to get my hands on any. Um, they're not really, I mean, I'm, it, maybe if I was in the States at the moment, there might be older copies in libraries, but, um, you know, he, he hasn't traveled. Um, in 1950, uh, Capote and Dunphy moved to Taormina to live in Sicily, to live in a house where D.H. Lawrence had once lived and, um, Dumphy was 10 years older than Capote. He was an enormous introvert, uh, as Capote was an enormous extrovert. And um, he wrote a book called Dear Genius, A Memoir of My Life with Truman Capote, um, which is disappointing if you are looking for a memoir of his life with Truman Capote, because uh, it's more of a novel with a few little pages about Truman Capote sprinkled throughout. Um, it's a strange book, and apparently he was pushed by editors and publishers to... Um, to market it as though it were more about Capote than it was. 
1958, Capote publishes uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, along with three other short stories in the same volume. Um, the novel was supposed to be published in Harper's Bazaar um, a few months at, before it came out in book form, and this is something that was fairly common at this time. Uh, magazines would devote an entire issue to an important new piece of writing, imagine that. Um, but at the last minute, the publisher of Harper's Bazaar, the Hearst Corporation, um, started demanding changes, first to Capote's language because it was too, and I quote, tart. Um, and then finally, uh, because the language and subject matter were not suitable. Um, Capote was outraged. He resold the book to Esquire magazine um, in which it ran, and then the novella was published shortly afterwards. Um, the main character, Holly Golightly, um, as Capote said, was, quote, not precisely a call girl. She had no job, but accompanied expense account men to the best restaurants and nightclubs with the understanding that her escort was obligated to give her some sort of gift, perhaps jewelry or a check. If she felt like it, she might take her escort home for the night. So these girls are the authentic American geishas, and they're much more prevalent now than in 1943 or 1944, which was Holly's era. People who have seen the Audrey Hepburn movie uh, may have the wrong idea about the plot of the novella. In the plot, uh, the male writer who befriends Holly is very clearly gay. There's no attempt to create a kind of heterosexual love between them. Uh, the book does not end with their reunion, but with sadness uh, and loneliness and Holly's disappearance. And also, um, the gay icon that was chosen to play Holly Golightly, uh, Capote thought was entirely wrong. This was supposed to be a farm girl from the American South um, whose uh, urbane nature was completely an artifice. Um, Capote wanted Marilyn Monroe for the role and not Audrey Hepburn and was furious. I could see that working. Yeah, she wasn't supposed to be that chic. I mean, like Audrey Hepburn in, the, in that movie is so just effortlessly classy and, and Holly Golightly. Yeah, whereas Monroe is, is game, right? Like there's something a bit more like, uh, like, yeah, country about her. Fleshy. Um, I want to read again the first paragraph of, of um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, which I think you see how the style is kind of maturing and you see the influence of um, that kind of Tennessee Williams-like Southern Gothic. Uh, but one of the reasons I think Capote is actually a more major artist than Tennessee Williams um, is that he's able to move out of that um, and write New York as well as he wrote Noon City, Alabama, with a lot of the same um, literary uh, techniques, but the, the feeling of it in your mouth is very different. I am always drawn back to places where I've lived, the houses and their neighborhoods. For instance, there's a brownstone in the East 70s where, during the early years of the war, I had my first New York apartment. It was one room crowded with attic furniture, a sofa and fat chairs upholstered in that itchy particular red velvet that one associates with hot days on a tram. The walls were stucco and a color rather like tobacco spit. Everywhere in the bathroom too, there were prints of Roman ruins freckled brown with age. The single window looked out on a fire escape. Even so, my spirits heightened whenever I felt in my pocket the key to this apartment. With all its gloom, it was still a place of my own, the first, and my books were there and jars of pencils to sharpen everything I needed, so I felt, to become the writer I wanted to be. The book's prose style prompted uh, Norman Mailer, uh, that great uh, raging penis of American literature, 
to say that Capote was, and I quote, tart as a grand aunt, but the best prose stylist of my generation. And what I think is interesting about that is it shows the response to his work. Um, you know, the, the work is critically praised, uh, but, right? <laughs> there's, always a, there's always a way in which it's kind of minimized by Capote's fagginess, by his supposed, uh, you know, that he was too much of a social butterfly, uh, that he wasn't really serious, that there's something kind of fundamentally frivolous about it. And I think that kind of homophobic criticism has really, has really kind of stuck with him. He encouraged yeah, his celebrity... He's, they're sort of saying he's a he's a fag, but don't hold that against him because he's also really good. Or like they can't help but um, you know uh, admire him, even though they really want him to not you know even be there. Maybe. Yeah, I mean they're basically saying you know the the topics of the literature, the subjects of the literature aren't that important. Um, and you know, however, the prose is very pretty, and this hasn't gone away in the literary world in 1999. 1999, uh, John Updike, another raging penis of American literature, uh, wrote a review in The New Yorker of Alan Hollinghurst's novel The Spell, which is about uh, four gay men of different ages and social positions in England in the mid-1990s. Um, here are some quotes from Hollinghurst's rev uh, Updike's review of Hollinghurst. Um, Quote, the novels of the English writer Alan Hollinghurst take some getting used to. They are relentlessly gay in their personnel, and after a while you begin to long for the chirp and swing and civilizing animation of a female. Updike says that the readers, quote, noses are rubbed by Hollinghurst in the poetry of a love object's anus. Um, this is someone... Uh, quote this article that I'm reading about Updike, whose, uh, whose treatment of sex in his own fiction was described by Wilfred Sheed as, quote, that of a fictional biochemist approaching mankind with a tray of hypersensitive gadgets. It was David Foster Wallace also who called Updike a penis with a thesaurus. Um, but Updike went on. He, he wrote a very detailed article, uh, a very detailed argument about the inappropriateness of gay love as the subject of novelistic fiction. Quote, Boredom swoops in without heterosexual clutter to obstruct its advent. Nothing is at stake but self-gratification. Novels about heterosexual partnering, however frivolous and reducible to increments of selfishness, social accident, foolish overestimations, and inflamed physical detail, do involve the perpetuation of the species and the ancient sacralized structures of the family. John Updike, The New Yorker, 1999. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Anyway, um, so if this is the reaction to a gay novel in the mid-1990s, uh, imagine 30 years before then, uh, or 40 years before then. Um, so I think partially spurred on by the idea that um, these previous books had been too... Um, social or too urban or too, you know, all of these words that are just synonyms for gay, uh, Capote decided to uh, tackle next something much more um, serious with a capital S. His next book was inspired by a 300-word article that he read in the November 16, 1959 issue of the New York Times, uh, a story which uh, described the unexplained murder of a family in a town called Holcomb, Kansas, uh, the Clutter family, uh, which quoted the town sheriff as saying that this is the case of a psychopathic killer. And Capote was fascinated by this news item, and so he 
uh, picked up the now adult Harper Lee and traveled out to Holcomb uh, and uh, over the course of the next few years uh, began to interview and report on everyone involved in the investigation. Um, in order to make people feel more comfortable, he would have, and this is, you can question the journalistic ethics of this, but it's kind of genius in a way, he would commit all of his conversations to people uh, with people to memory rather than taking notes while they were talking uh, and then immediately run off and, and write everything down and write down all the quotes as soon as the interview ended. Um, Harper Lee would help him. Uh, you can imagine a um, short, uh, rather socially outrageous, uh, foppishly dressed, blonde twink uh, with a little voice like this showing up in uh, Holcomb, Kansas in 1959 was not the easiest Thing for everyone there to uh, figure out how to respond to. Harper Lee, uh, who was a more conventional appearing person, uh, helped with a lot of the social introductions and uh, smoothed some of the ground down. To talk a little bit about what happened. This, this, in, uh, the subject, this is the subject of the, uh, the, the biopic, right? The, um, the, yeah. the, the film Capote. The film Capote. There's actually two. Philip Seymour Hoffton. Yeah, there's two that were made at the same time. Um, which are kind of about the same time, the same moment. Um, but Capote is the more famous one. Um, the crime that occurred. Uh, two men, Perry Smith and Richard Hickok, uh, or Dick Hickok, uh, first met in the Kansas State Penitentiary. Uh, they were both paroled, and uh, Hickok wrote to Smith uh, proposing that they commit a robbery together. Um, the two met with one another. Uh, they drove west to Holcomb. Uh, they entered the clutter home through an unlocked door. They had identified this as a, as a sort of wealthy local farmer, and it was a somewhat random selection. They had no particular um, connection to them. They had gotten the idea to rob the clutters after being told by a former cellmate, the Kansas State Penitentiary, that there was a safe in the house with $10,000. So they enter the home through an unlocked door. Uh, they murdered the four family present members present, uh, Herbert and his wife, Bonnie, and their younger children, Nancy and Kenyon. Um, they realized that there was no safe, so they didn't get any money from the murder at all. They roamed the country uh, for six weeks and were captured on December 30th, 1959 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, the two men disagreed about who had done what. Smith agreed to killing all of the men, but the two men uh, fought with each other about who had shot the two women. Um, and Perry Smith uh, became a very interesting figure in the book. Um, Capote portrays Hickok as um, cold-blooded, almost psychopathic, and Perry Smith is kind of a dreamy, artistic, um, sensitive, you know, if not wrong place, wrong time, then at least the question of why someone like this would have done this is one of the kind of motivating psychological dramas of the book. Another motivating drama of the book is the obvious attraction of the author to Smith. Um, Smith had a strong interest in art, literature, and music, um, and during his time on death row, he wrote poems and painted pictures uh, for other inmates. Um, the book sparked an enormous uh, wave of true crime. I mean, everything we think of now as true crime, this genre hadn't really existed um, until then. I mean, obviously there were sensational journalistic crime stories, but the idea of um, artistically retelling a narrative like this and, you know, what are the motivations of the killer and all this stuff that's just really familiar to us now um, 
comes from, in some sense, this book. Um, there were rumors at the time that Capote had fallen in love with Perry Smith. Those are probably true. There are rumors that they had had an affair on death row. Those are probably not true. Um, what's very concerning or troubling about the book, um, and this is also part of what the movie is about, is that um, there it does seem that uh, Capote had promised Smith and Hickok in the over the course of their conversation uh, legal help in fighting their death penalty cases. Uh, but by the time they were up for execution in the mid-1960s, Capote uh, sort of needed them to die in order to have the ending of his book, and he seems to have withdrawn his offer of legal help um, and kind of sent them oh. off to the gallows. Yeah, that's fucked up. So he could get his ending. Um, you know, one author writes, he may have strung them along by pretending to write an account sympathetic enough to provide grist for their final appeals against the death penalty, when in fact his intentions were quite different and possibly self-serving. Um, the reviewer Philip Tynan uh, wrote in The Observer at the time, quote, we are talking in the long run about responsibility, the debt that a writer arguably owes to those who provide him down to the last autobiographical parentheses with this subject matter and his livelihood. For the first time, an influential writer of the front rank has been placed in a position of privileged intimacy with criminals about to die. And in my view, done less than he might have to save them. The focus narrows sharply down on priorities. Does the work come first or does life? An attempt to help by supplying new psychiatric testimony might easily have failed. What one misses is any sign that it was ever contemplated. There were also uh, immediately criticisms which have continued that the book uh, contains some factual discrepancies. Uh, the last scene, which is a very poetic kind of reconciliation, um, not reconciliation, but a very poetic kind of meeting between two friends who are minor characters in the town graveyard, seems to be completely invented. Um, Capote would insist that every word of the book is true. Uh, I don't think it needs to be. I think the the it's a it's an enormous um, and truly extraordinary work of literature. Uh, and I, I, I think that by claiming that every word was true, Capote made himself more vulnerable than he needed to. Uh, I think mostly true would have sufficed. Um, I'm going to read fairly extensively from the beginning of, old, from, of In Cold Blood uh, once again, because I think this is one of the best openings of any book ever. And I'll talk about why when I'm done reading. So. The village of Holcomb stands on the high wheat plains of western Kansas a lonesome area that other Kansans call out there. Some 70 miles east of the Colorado border, the countryside, with its hard blue skies and desert clear air, has an atmosphere that is rather more far west than middle west. The local accent is barbed with a prairie twang, a ranch hand nasalness, and the men, many of them, wear narrow frontier trousers, stetsons, and high-heeled boots with pointed toes. The land is flat and the views are awesomely extensive. Horses, herds of cattle, a white cluster of grain elevators rising as gracefully as Greek temples are visible long before a traveler reaches them. Holcomb, too, can be seen from great distances. Not that there is much to see, simply an aimless congregation of buildings divided in the center by the mainline tracks of the Santa Fe Railway, a haphazard hamlet bounded on the south by a brown stretch of the Arkansas River, on the north by a highway, Route 50, and on the east and west by prairie lands and wheat fields. After rain or when snowfalls thaw, the streets unnamed, unshaded, unpaved, turn from the thickest dust into the direst mud. At one end of the town stands a stark old stucco structure, the roof of which supports an electric sign, dance, but the dancing has ceased and the advertisement has been dark for several years. Nearby is another building with an irrelevant sign, 
this one in flaking gold on a dirty window, Holcomb Bank. The bank failed in 1933 and its former counting rooms had been converted into apartments. It's one of the town's two apartment houses, the second being a ramshackle mansion known because a good part of the local school's faculty lives there as the teacherage. But the majority of Holcomb's homes are one-story frame affairs with front porches. Down by the depot, the postmistress, a gaunt woman who wears a rawhide jacket and denims and cowboy boots, presides over a falling apart post office. The depot itself with its peeling sulfur-colored paint is equally melancholy. The chief, the super chief, the El Capitan go by every day, but these celebrated expresses never pause there. No passenger trains do, only an occasional freight. Up on the highway, there are two filling stations, one of which doubles as a meagerly supplied grocery store while the other does extra duty as a cafe, Hartman's Cafe, where Mrs. Hartman, the proprietress, dispenses sandwiches, coffee, soft drinks, and 3.2 beer. Holcomb, like all the rest of Kansas, is dry. And that really is all. Unless you include as one must the Holcomb School, a good-looking establishment, which reveals a circumstance that the appearance of the community otherwise camouflages, that the parents who send their children to this modern and ably staffed consolidated school, the grades go from kindergarten through senior high and a fleet of buses transports the students, of which there were usually around 360, from as far as 16 miles away, are in generous, prosperous people. Farm ranchers, most of them, they are outdoor folk of very varied stock, German, Irish, Norwegian, Mexican, Japanese. They raise cattle and sheep, grow wheat, milo, grass seed, and sugar beets. Farming is always a chancy business, but in western Kansas, its practitioners consider themselves born gamblers, for they must contend with an extremely shallow precipitation and anguishing irrigation problems. However, the last seven years have been years of droughtless beneficence. The farm ranchers in Finney County, of which Holcomb is a part, have done well. Money has been made not from farming alone, but also due to the exploitation of plentiful natural gas resources, and its acquisition is reflected in the new school, the comfortable interiors of the farmhouses, the steep and swollen grain elevators. Until one morning in mid-November of 1959, few Americans, in fact, few Kansans had ever heard of Holcomb. Like the waters of the river, like the motorists on the highway, and like the yellow trains streaking down the Santa Fe tracks, drama in the shape of exceptional happenings had never stopped there. The inhabitants of the village, numbering 270, were satisfied that this should be so, quite content to exist inside ordinary life, to work, to hunt, to watch television, to attend school socials, choir practice, meetings of the 4-H club. But then in the earliest hours of that morning in November, a Sunday morning, certain foreign sounds impinged on the normal Holcomb noises, on the keening hysteria of coyotes, the dry scrape of scuttling tumbleweed, the racing, receding wail of locomotive whistles. At that time, not a soul in sleeping Holcomb heard them, four shotgun blasts that, all told, ended six human lives. But afterward, the townspeople, theretofore sufficiently unfearful of each other to seldom trouble to lock their doors, found fantasy recreating them over and over again. These somber explosions that stimulated fires of mistrust, in the glare of which many old neighbors viewed each other strangely and as strangers. <sighs> isn't that just incredible? <laughs> isn't that just incredible writing? Um, yeah, incredible. It's... it's um... It's so cinematic, but then within this, this, the cinematic sort of um, description of landscape, there's this like very powerful uh, psychological element that he brings in through that sort of flatland description. Yeah, it was. We looked at this in a um, in one of my most one of the writing teachers who did the most for me as a teacher 
we looked at this for a long time as an example of what she called resonant detail, right? The, the way in which uh, a series of descriptions because of the resonance of those images will kind of carry along um, the uh, strange dream that is uh, the dream that you're trying to dream into someone else's head, basically. Uh, when you're writing fiction, you see some of the baroqueness uh, receding in the writing, some of the, the new clarity, but then the, the alliterations, um, the kind of delight in the rhythm and sound and shape of words uh, still very much there uh, that we've been hearing in all of these excerpts from Capote's writing all the way back to, the, to that first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms. Um, writing this book took a huge amount out of Capote. Um, he was really uh, drained. And uh, so decided uh, after the book's publication to celebrate with what he referred to as a little masked ball. Uh, but this was uh, a Truman Capote little masked ball. So it was a little masked ball for him and 540 of his closest friends, um, an event which garnered more publicity than the Academy Awards that year and which was held in the Grand Ballroom of the Plaza Hotel in New York. Uh, Capote was, of course, himself the guest of honor, although uh, that's not what one does when one throws a party, and so he named as the guest of honor uh, Catherine Graham. Graham is a fascinating woman. Uh, her family owned Newsweek in the Washington Post, and uh, her husband, Philip Graham, uh, had been the sort of scion of the family and you know the one who was sort of named or thought of who was going to go on to be the publisher of the newspaper. The Washington Post, like the New York Times, has always been, or has often been, rather, a sort of family-owned business. The Post is now, of course, owned by Jeff Bezos and Amazon. But um, when Philip Graham killed himself, nobody thought uh, much of Catherine Graham, uh, but she would end up going to run the newspaper for the next two decades, and it was under her watch that the newspaper broke, for example, the Watergate uh, story about the Nixon administration, so she ended up being a very influential uh, figure in the field of journalism. Um, this big party, a lot of people said, was sort of the beginning of the Truman's descent. It was sort of his departure from the world of writing into the world of uh, living as art, uh, which unfortunately for him led down a path of drugs and drink. The author of uh, the 2006 book Party of the Century, the fabulous story of Truman Capote and the black and white ball, a woman named Deborah Davis said, and there will never be another first time that somebody like Andy Warhol could step into a room with somebody like Babe Paley. Babe Paley was one of Capote's so-called swans. It was a socialite wife of uh, William Paley, who was the first CEO of the CBS network. Let's talk guest list. The poet Marianne Moore, Gloria Vanderbilt and Lionel Trilling, Lady Bird Johnson, the Maharani of Jaipur, the Italian princess Luciana Pignatelli wearing a 60-carat Harry Winston diamond, the documentary filmmaker Albert Mazels, John Kenneth Galbraith, the CEO of the Ford Motor Company, Henry Fonda, Joel Schumacher, William F. Buckley, Harold Prince, Jerome Robbins, Lauren Bacall, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., Lee Radziwill, various and sundry Kennedys, a young Candris Bergen, Frank Sinatra and Mio Farrow, Norman Mailer, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Tallulah Bankhead, Etc. 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 And you can sort of think about the innocence in some strange way uh, behind this very sophisticated event. This is exactly the kind of party that a precocious, lonely eight-year-old faggot growing up in a small town imagines that someday they're going to host for themselves. 
Um, and yeah, he made it. You can tell he feels like, yeah, at that, that point he made it. He absolutely made it. And it was also a moment of real change, really important change in the way that New York City society worked. Uh, society in New York City had until that time been very caste-based. Um, it was dominated by a handful of kind of major families, similar to how we might read about in an Edith Wharton or a Henry James novel. Uh, and this was one of the first times when um, this sort of vision of society as this mix of all of these different kinds of people, uh, where you would have, you know, CEOs and artists and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, Andy Warhol was there. Um, and and this kind of social mixing is uh, also very kind of influential to, to Warhol later on into this kind of in some way, kind of the vision of the of 1970s, 1980s New York, right? You know, the, the whole sort of social vision of someplace like Studio 54 um, comes from uh, this or, or sort of first happens at this event. Um, I want to quote a few, uh, a few people about the party. The editor, Leo Lerman, said, the ball was one of his major works, as much a major work as some of his short stories. He sat there planning it all summer long, surrounded by these notebooks. I thought, what is he writing? It turned out to be this ball. He had the most marvelous time doing it. One of the things he adored saying was, well, maybe they'll be invited and maybe you won't. The publisher, John Sargent, in my diary, I have this curious poem. I have no idea whose it is. It just sits there. Truman Capote is not nearly so dotty as some of the people who went to his party. Joel Schumacher said, uh, there are a lot of people who can get by in life having the talent to amuse. I can't criticize that. If you can live with it on your own terms, then fine. But with Truman, we're talking about a great American writer. For all those years to have gone by and for so little to have emerged, he was treated like a peeking ease, sitting on a needlepoint pillow for everybody to say, how darling, how bitchy. I think the ball in many ways was the beginning of the end. The celebrity of it took precedence over his own craft. And finally, the socialite CZ guest who said, they don't give parties like that anymore because everyone's dead, unfortunately. And so this was an enormous celebrity event. The guest list was published in the New York Times. I mean, this was a, it was just an enormous uh, affair and marked Capote's entry into uh, the very highest levels of society or his arrival in the very highest levels of, of uh, 1960s and 1970s jet set society. Uh, it was at this time that Gore Vidal observed, quote, Truman Capote has tried with some success to get into a world that I have tried with some success to get out of. <laughs> It's a great line. Very this is, this is also the time when uh, this is a time when Capote becomes uh, dear friends with a woman named Lee Radziwill, who becomes uh, one of his main new quote unquote swans, uh, names for these socialites he associated with. Uh, she was the sister of uh, a woman you may have heard of named Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, um, who was also an aspiring actress um, and. So Capote decided to write at the teleplay for a television adaptation of the Otto Preminger film, Laura, for her. Uh, and the adaptation, and specifically Radziwill, uh, received very bad reviews and very bad ratings. It was one of Capote's first major professional setbacks. Um, and after this point, Capote never finished another major writing project. Um, he wrote a screenplay, uh, or attempted to write a screenplay for the 1974 adaptation of The Great Gatsby, but Paramount Pictures rejected the script. Um, he began to appear on the talk show circuit and be a kind of regular fixture of television as a kind of drawling, increasingly overweight, uh, bitchy commenter on various things. Interestingly, he was often asked to 
discussed the criminal justice system uh, because he had written in cold blood and he often uh, expressed very uh, right-wing views about that. Um, in 1972, uh, Capote was sent on a tour with the Rolling Stones uh, to write an article about their tour for the magazine Rolling Stone, uh, and then beginning a pattern that would continue for a lot of work in the end of his life, refused to write the article. Um, so the magazine ended up publishing an interview with Capote by Andy Warhol to recoup at least something from the investment in all of that. Um, but this was also at a time when publishing made money, so you would be you know, paid four dollars a word plus expenses to go write a magazine article can you imagine you yeah um i can dream yeah um capote had once asserted that you lost an iq point for every year you spent on the west coast uh, but it was at this time he ended up uh, purchasing a home in palm springs and spending more time out there and actually following his own maxim he did seem to begin to <laughs> lose it somewhat uh, he began to drink much more heavily. Uh, he began to quarrel a lot with Jack Dunphy. Their relationship had never been exclusive, uh, but they had houses next to each other on Long Island and, and uh, you know, flats near each other and, and stuff like that. And uh, throughout the 1970s, they were uh, mostly separated. They barely saw each other. It was around this time that uh, Capote met uh, in a New York City bathhouse uh, a man named John O'Shea, who was by all accounts... Um, only deviated from the average in ways that made him uh, less attractive and more unpleasant. Um, he was someone who did not identify as either gay or bisexual, uh, but who uh, certainly found Capote's money uh, interesting uh, and celebrity interesting and who wanted to become a professional writer. And so the two engaged in a very uh, strange and manip mutually manipulative relationship throughout the 1970s. Um, O'Shea became officially employed as Capote's manager and tried to take total control of the author's literary and business interests, often to uh, very damaging ends. Now, throughout all of this time, Capote claimed that he was writing a tell-all novel called Answered Prayers. Uh, he announced in grand style that uh, the book was going to be the American equivalent of Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, and a kind of culmination of this nonfiction novel format that he had developed within Cold Blood. You're really setting yourself up there of, uh, for failure, though. No? Like, yes, yeah. I'm going to write the American in, in Search for Lost Time. And uh, when the book sold uh, in the early 1960s, In Cold Blood uh, had been such a hit that he immediately sold film rights to 20th Century Fox. Uh, the book, the novel was first delayed from 1968 to 1972, and he had to give the film money back. Um, he would talk about the novel in interviews, but kept postponing the delivery date. And then finally... Uh, in 1975 and 1976, um, he basically, because he had to do something, uh, permitted Esquire magazine to publish four chapters um, of the nine that would comprise the novel. Uh, the first chapter to appear is a self-contained short story called Mojave and was fairly well received. Um, the second story uh, is one of the great spillings of tea uh, in all of history. Uh, Capote wrote uh, one of the chapters of the novel, which was called uh, La Cote Basque, 1965. Um, and it was published in Esquire magazine in November 1975, and it was Capote's social suicide. Um, in the chapter, the main character of the book, a guy named P.B. Jones, who's based on Capote himself, uh, meets up with uh, a woman named 
in the story, Lady Ina Coolberth. Um, she's based on the New York socialite Slim Keith, uh, and she invites him to have a lunch at La Cote Basque, which was, you know, the restaurant to see and be seen in. Uh, and then they see and are seen by everybody and proceed to tell absolutely all of their stories. Um, there is gossip in this story about Gloria Vanderbilt, about Carol Matha, about Princess Margaret, Prince Charles, uh, about Lee Radziwill, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Um, there is a... Uh, there was a woman named Ann Woodward who was a West Virginia dancer, quote unquote, who then uh, married uh, a guy named William Woodward Jr. and ended up killing him. Uh, and the murder was covered up by his family because they didn't want the sort of shame on the family. Um, Capote tells this entire story in great detail, um, changing her name from Ann Woodward to Ann Hopkins. So, you know. <laughs> um, it, it, it's just, I mean, it's, it's incredible because it's every single one of the best stories that he had heard this whole time while he was around um, as a kind of social accessory. Um, but of course, if you were one of the people who were keeping him around as a social accessory, it was like being, you know, bitten by a dog that you had fed or something. In fact, there was a, there was a cartoon that was drawn of uh, Truman Capote as a fat poodle biting the sort of hands of the of the slender socialites uh, walking him on their leashes, which despite in some ways being a homophobic caricature is I think also kind of a representation of what he allowed himself to become. Uh, what he said uh, later was that I, he didn't understand why no one realized that all the time that he was around listening to all these stories, he was still a writer. They knew he was a writer. They knew he was working on a book called Answered Prayers that was gonna be about the jet set of the 1960s. Um, you know, I think he didn't see what he was doing in that world as being much different from uh, what he had been doing in Kansas. Uh, but of course, if you piss off a farmer in Kansas by misquoting them, they can get mad at you. If you piss off the wife of the president of CBS News, they can fire you from life. Um, and if you haven't published anything in a lot of years and you're depending for the lifestyle in which you become accustomed on uh, people who are going to fly you on their private jet to wherever for the summer, uh, and then the invitations stop coming, there you go. Or promote you in their magazines and give you good reviews, surely. Absolutely, all of that as well. Uh, and so he also, he ended up then publishing two more chapters after that, uh, Unspoiled Monsters, which I quoted from here at the beginning, and Kate McLeod. Um, it's four chapters of the novel, but it's quite long. I mean, the Unspoiled Monsters itself is almost as long as Breakfast at Tiffany's and is, uh, I think, one of his last uh, really sort of top-level pieces of work. In the late 1970s, after this, uh, Capote was kind of a shattered person. He was... Uh, in and out of rehab clinics. Uh, in 1978, um, he went on a talk show hosted by a guy named Stanley Siegel um, in a completely intoxicated state. Uh, he confessed that he had been awake for 48 hours, and Siegel asked him, what's going to happen unless you lick this problem? And Capote said, well, the obvious answer is that eventually, I mean, I'll kill myself without meaning to. Andy Warhol, uh, who had looked up to the writer, uh, became concerned and sort of stepped in at this time. Um, he painted Capote's portrait uh, in exchange for Capote contributing short pieces uh, to uh, Interview Magazine, which Warhol had just begun in the form of a column that was called uh, Conversations with Capote. Um, and Capote began to, sort of his last major uh, kind of form, 
um, were these very short, semi-fictional, conversational portraits, uh, which became the basis for his book, uh, Music for Chameleons, which is a collection of these little uh, pieces, which was published in 1980. Uh, at this time, Capote also uh, lost a lot of weight. He got a facelift um, and um, was sort of planning a comeback. Uh, he continued to promote answered prayers as being nearly complete. He would read to friends from chapters that had not yet been published. No one else ever saw the pages uh, that hadn't been published in Esquire. No one held them in their hands, but he would sit there and read to you from them. Um, but uh, because of his uh, advancing liver disease uh, that was complicated, uh, complicated by multiple drug intoxication, uh, he died in Bel Air, Los Angeles, a month before his 60th birthday on August 25th, 1984 at the home of Joanne Carson, who was the ex-wife of the late-night TV host Johnny Carson, on whose program Capote had been a frequent guest. And our second bitchy Gore Vidal quote is Gore Vidal's response to the news of Capote's death. He called it, quote, a wise career move. Ouch. Answered prayers, um, as I mentioned, no one ever found uh, those chapters, uh, those other chapters from which Capote uh, had read. So the only thing that anyone has ever found of it is those four chapters that were published in Esquire. Um, there are various stories about what happened. Um, and there's basically two camps. For a while, people thought um, that it was a chance that someone was going to find it. And I think especially when the first novel was found, there was a real hope that maybe some other housekeeper had some copy of it someplace and, and we would get our hands on it. Um, enough time has passed that that seems less and less likely. Um, one possibility is that after the publication of the chapters in Esquire, Capote had become so insecure about everything that wasn't published that he had destroyed everything, um, or that he had destroyed them later in life. Uh, and another possibility that some people take seriously is that those other chapters had never been written, um, that he was so brilliant that when he was on, he could just hold pages in front of him and tell stories, and people just thought that that was, the, that that was from the book. Um, I want to conclude by reading uh, the last paragraph of Unspoiled Monsters, um, going back to the beginning um, of our episode here, uh, which in which the Capote-like character has uh, checked into a low-rent hotel in Manhattan and is trying to fall asleep. Stop it. You're pissed, PB. You're a loser, an asshole drum drunk loser, PB Jones. So good night. Good night, Walter Winchell, and whatever hell you're baking. Good night, Mr. and Mrs. America, and all the ships at sea, and whatever sea you're sinking. And a very special good night to that wise philosopher, Flory Rotondo, age eight. Flory, and I mean this, honey, I hope you never reached the interior of the planet Earth, never discovered uranium, rubies, and unspoiled monsters. With all my heart, what there is of it, I hope you moved to the country and lived there happily ever after. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our Patreon listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful T-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show. 
to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Thanks, Ben. That's an amazing story about his life. Do you think fundamentally it was a waste? No. No, of course not. No one who wrote Other Voices, Other Rooms, Breakfast at Tiffany's, In Cold Blood, and the parts of Answer Prayers that we have out, never mind some of the delightful and lovely shorter works, um, could be considered to have uh, totally wasted their life. Um, I also think it's, I mean, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question, right? You know, first of all, who am I to say someone wasted their life or didn't? Um, secondly, well, we all want more, right? When, when someone shows that sort of talent and then decides not to use it or, or their life changes and their circumstances or they get driven off course, then it's quite a selfish attitude, I suppose, towards like creative people. But Of course. Uh, of course we want more. Um, of course I want more. Of course I want all of Answer Prayers. I want him to have finished it in 1972, and I want him to have then written four more things, and I want him to have died, you know, not at the age of 60 in 1984, but at the age of 80 in 2004. I mean, God, can you imagine? Right, and, and, and Truman no Capote's, about- Can you imagine Truman Capote's commentary on the Clinton impeachment? Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, of course, right. And no one thinks of... Um, Harper Lee's life is a waste, despite the fact that that was much less published. Exactly. And Harper Lee, I mean, Harper Lee didn't even go to any of the good parties. She just sat in that strange town in Alabama and knitted or whatever it is that she did. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think one of, the things that, one of the things that I think has contributed to Capote's reputation as somebody who kind of pissed away his life is the fact that people don't remember anything other than the movie of Breakfast at Tiffany's and the book in Cold Blood. And I think a lot of people think Truman Capote, they think like Lisp, talk shows, in Cold Blood, and maybe they think he wrote the screenplay of Breakfast at Tiffany's or something. And the film of Breakfast at Tiffany's is a lot of fun, uh, but it is a different, it has a different degree of artistic ambition and a much lower degree of artistic ambition than the book. which is not true of every film adaptation of everything, but in this case it is. Um, and Other Voices, Other Rooms, I think, is really not talked about enough. I mean, it is such a great novel. And along with um, the Gore Vidal novel, The City and the Pillar is one of the first um, sort of gay male novels in mainstream U.S. publishing um, that, you know, comes out and, and speaks about these things without euphemism. Unlike The City and the Pillar, uh, the Capote novel doesn't end with the character's realization that they are gay uh, being a horrifying or shameful thing. I mean, the, the, the character of Randolph, the kind of old queen uncle, um, is a very kind of old-fashioned portrait of the, you know, homosexual as desperately sad, uh, you know, invert or whatever. Uh, but the Joel's returning to uh, Randolph and by strong implication, his becoming queer um, is presented at the end of that book very optimistically. You know, it's the, it's the boy, the boyhood he's leaving behind and there's no doubt in his mind. And and there he goes. Um, And of course um, there has to be space, especially for queer writers writing queer characters to be able to, we can't just, um, I mean, it's better, better than 
than anyone. That you can't just focus on these like heroic gay characters who uh, who triumph or survive or who are who are noble or something like that. That isn't that isn't our lives, um, and right. and it's not what it's not what interesting characters are made out of. It. It isn't, um, and it also doesn't acknowledge the ways in which um, some of these kind of visions of what queerness is become really influential, and then in some way become themselves queered. Right? That you know the the um, you know the kind of homophobic maybe idea that all queers are just these kind of desperately sad old losers who are you know sitting around in their house remembering yesteryear and you know inverts and surrounded by all their precious objects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in the novel, Capote kind of uh, queers that idea by presenting uh, Randolph as in some way at the end, the kind of hero of the novel, or the catalyst for the hero of the novel, or something that's very kind of attractive. He kind of connects to it uh, in an intentional way. Um, and so many of us have done that. You know, so many of us uh, live out some of these aspects of our queerness at this kind of remove of thinking like, oh yeah, it's really, fu-. you know, like I have a framed picture of Judy Garland on my wall. And Partially, it's because of the sight gag of being a faggot who has a framed picture of Judy Garland on their wall, but also I like having a picture of Judy Garland on my wall. You know, you can, you can kind of, um, th- these things are, are and have always been uh, partially ironic. Um, yeah. I also think it's really interesting to kind of track Capote's social life as very much the social life of somebody who uh, never thought he would have one. Um, and um, to to follow through the evolution of the prose style, um, the journey from this kind of uh, lonesome and gothic American South into this kind of crisp modernist clarity of mid 20th century New York. And then uh, by the time we get to answered prayers, um, the anger I think has really kind of slipped out um, and taken over as the kind of motivating factor in the, in the writing. And it's, all, I think, as spectacular as the rest of it. I mean, each piece is so different from the others, and yet every single sentence that this man ever published is perfect, is a perfect sentence. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of, of the rhythm of it and in terms of the, um, the shapes that your mouth makes as you read it out loud and what kind of colors those vowel sounds evoke. Um, I mean, there, he was just an absolute... Um, an absolute master of um, that kind of Flaubert style uh, prose realism. Um, yeah. And while we were, might want more books, maybe for him, uh, wanting popularity and friendship is uh, uh, really important. You know, that's what might, maybe was more motivating him. I thought it was interesting before that you mentioned this, this idea about him being a, uh, him being remembered in the popular imagination as a, for a couple of novels, uh, the films, and then there's this uh, raconteur on a talk shows, you know, that he, that, that was a large part of maybe what made and sustained his reputation, that he became a, a sort of wider social figure. And I wonder what his reputation would be like, were he not an extrovert who wanted to go into the talk shows? And then also how that sort of affects our, um, a sort of popular understanding of, gay men especially in American life in the late 20th century, that you had these figures, you know, that the literary world was so much more a part of popular culture. I can't remember the last time I saw a novelist on a talk show, for example, these days, and that they were they were so popular in that role as raconteurs, and that they, while they perhaps, men like him and Gore Vidal, did embody 
some stereotypes of like what it was to be a gay ma- gay man at that time. Um, they did it with such verve and wit uh, that they they made sort of quite quite an impression upon popular culture of what gay life was and what gay men could be. Um, whether that is should be regarded as actually like a quite important part of his legacy. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Uh, on the one hand, I think that if you had a writer who um, was who wrote uh, works of the same um, prose quality uh, as Truman Capote, if wrote who was who was, who was that fine of a stylist, uh, who was a straight man who didn't have this kind of outre social reputation, I think that person would be remembered more for their writing than Capote is. Um, on the other hand, I do definitely think that it was true that um, in a very similar kind of strategic uh, move with Andy Warhol and with some of the same drawbacks, um, Capote very um, intentionally deployed uh, that particular kind of social outreness uh, in order to achieve the kind of uh, fame and renown that was available for a gay man to achieve at that time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, Ben, Truman Capote, good gay or bad gay? He's definitely gay. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> the gayest of all of the gays. Um, but I am going to actually, despite the name of our show, um, and despite the ethical questions around um, the writing of In Cold Blood, I can't come down anywhere other than good here. Um, I think Truman Capote is one of the best uh, writers that ever has been. And uh, Your 15-year-old love- self would never forgive you. His work too much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. So um, if people want to know more about Truman Capote, what were some of the sources you used for this episode? Well, the number one thing that I would tell people to do is to read the work, um, to read the three or four major, depending on how you count, uh, major published uh, works, which are the novel Other Voices, Other Rooms, uh, the novel Breaks to Tiffany's, the nonfiction novel In Cold Blood, um, and uh, the final novel Answered Prayers. Um, and there is also uh, a delightful little collection called Music for Chameleons that I mentioned earlier that comes out of the um, that comes out of the work he did uh, with and for um, Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine. Uh, there is also an excellent biography of Truman Capote by Gerald Clark called Capote. That was the basis for the film, which people can also watch if they would like. Um, and then I also would highly recommend a New Yorker article by Hilton Ellis that we'll link to in the. Uh, notes uh, that Hals wrote as the introduction to a collection of early Capote short stories and that extensively discusses race in Capote's work. Thank you so much. Well, you've been listening to Bad Gays. You can find us online where you can find old episodes of the show, a link to our Patreon and uh, fantastic t-shirts for sale, which Ben is sporting right now. I can see over Zoom. It's very yes, fetching. And those t-shirts are available at our website, which is badgazepod.com. Um, and you can follow the show on Twitter at badgazepod. You can follow me at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow me at Hugh Lemmy. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.